Our Father, we've just proclaimed that we do desperately need you. And we take that seriously, especially when we've been bombarded with all the messages the world tries to throw at us throughout our week. And now as we recenter ourselves in you, and as you continue to remind us whose we are, I pray that we will take that seriously and that we can say, Lord, have mercy on us. We need you. We need you desperately. We need the change that only you can bring into our lives. And as we look into that theme today by looking at your word, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit will empower those words and help them come alive in our minds. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Starting a new mini-series. It's called Time for a Change. And I don't know about you, but I find myself in discussions with people, and it's so often that we think, well, that person sure needs to change. Or if this situation at work is ever going to change, then that person's going to have to change something. And I think what I hope will happen as we start gazing into God's Word, He's going to point the finger where it needs to be pointed. He'll turn it around and point it at our own hearts and minds, and we'll recognize that the kind of change He offers everybody who trusts Him will positively affect not only our lives, but every life we come in contact with. So that's what we're looking at. This first message is titled, Change Always Starts with Choice. Always. Here's a story. Disclaimer, this story did not actually happen. Hmm. It's made up. It's fictitious. It's completely fictitious. It has nothing to do with any live person that you may or may not know sitting in this room today. Just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> but allegedly, this conversation was heard in a coffee shop, and one guy was overheard saying this. He said to his friend, so this old guy sat in my seat at church the other day. He's a quiet dude, nice enough guy, I guess, and it really ought to be no big deal. I mean, I could sit anywhere. But the more I think about it, the more I realize I really like my seat. My seat's close to the exit, so I can get up and go to the bathroom anytime I need to, without disturbing anybody, of course. And I mean, I wouldn't normally worry about it because I'm certainly not the kind of guy who would nurse a grudge. But when that guy took my seat last Christmas, he just sat there like I didn't even exist. I don't know why he took it. I mean, I don't know his motives. As far as I know, I've never offended him. In fact, come to think about it, I don't think I've ever actually even spoken to him. But one thing's for sure, I've never taken his seat. I mean, I've never offended him. I'm getting a little tired, if I'm honest, about showing up an hour early for church just so I can get my seat. I can see why he would want that seat. I mean, after all, it's probably the best seat in the house. It's so close to the back and all. But I had seniority. It may seem like a small matter at first, but when you think about it, this is how some of the great social injustices begin. It can all start to unravel when selfish people start stealing other people's seats 
without their permission. I mean, come on, where does it end? Now it's the seat. Maybe tomorrow it's going to be your parking space. Maybe your home after that. I mean, before long, all of society as we know it will be a shambles. I think and I hope that you can tell that this is exaggerated for a reason. And yet, have you noticed how change can create some unusual things and reactions in human beings? And if you're a human being, you may notice that in yourself as well. And there are some very real, common, human dynamics that play into why we react to change that way. For example, change results in loss. Loss results in grief. Grief often results in anxiety. Anxiety leads to fear. Fear can lead to anger. And fear and anger lead to blaming. And this escalating dynamic can fan the flame, the flame of conflict. And it happens with all of us all the time because we have change in our lives all the time. Now, when we understand that change propels us into the process of grief, I think it can start to help prepare ourselves for proactively and productively handling these changes that come into our lives. And where are we going to find the best and most healthy ways of dealing with grief? Well, I think it would be God's Word. We in Christianity believe that God always tells us the best things for us because He wants the best for us, and His wisdom puts us on the right path to handling situations including change and grief and all that that comes with it because if we're listening to his wisdom he's going to help us turn that around and it becomes redemptive that's God's nature it's good for our health it's good for our spiritual health our emotional health it's good for our physical health all of that can be changed because we're allowing God to make the change in us when it comes to Christianity, then we believe that the healthiest approaches to change are guided by God's Word. So that's where we're looking for the kinds of responses to change, and we're going to start that today. God's in the transformation business. I mean, that's what He does, and He does it really well. He's good at it, and He wants to change us for the better. He's not the kind of tyrannical leader who wants to just slap us up because He enjoys that somehow. He's not sadistic that way. Some people would try to paint him that way, but he's not. We can tell that by reading all of the New Testament, especially what Jesus did for us on our behalf. So we're going to be much better equipped by looking at what God has in store for us as we start facing change that creates grief in our lives. Time for a change. We're going to look at the biblical ways that change the way we think and where we start that process is going to start in the mind. So that's what's going to be our focus today. Here's some names that we'll see in the Bible that are associated with big changes that happen in all of us, especially if we're trusting Christ, if we're believers. Salvation. We hear that a lot in evangelical or Baptist churches. Salvation. Some people don't understand that salvation is a multifaceted word. It's not just talking about a walking down the aisle one day and signing a card, and that means I've been saved. It's the whole process of preparing for our destination in eternity. And a lot of times when they say, well, somebody got saved, what they mean is they started the process of walking with Christ. They took the first step of faith. 
And so they are being saved and they will be saved. It's a not one and done situation. We're entering into a lifestyle following Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. And that's where we get into some things like conversion. Very often they'll say, oh, that person was converted. But that gets confused too because they'll say, well, he's a converted Catholic or a con converted Presbyterian or a converted vegan and he discovered he loves steak. But that's just a change from one situation to another situation and conversion for us is just a way of saying we've changed our mind. That goes along with that definition of repentance. We're changing our direction and we're facing in a new direction. Now that's conversion. That's often associated as well with that first step that people take to trust Christ. But it's not the final step. Then there's this biblical word called sanctification. And the sanctification is the ongoing small steps, baby steps transformation that goes on for a lifetime as God through his spirit starts forming us more into his image so that we look less like the world and more like him and we can reflect him to others. Another thing that we see uh, in John, Jesus was talking to a guy who needed an analogy so he could grasp it. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. That has also been co-opted by a lot of the world and they'll use that phrase either to deride Christians and say, oh, he's one of those born again people. Or they might use born again but in a very secular way just to say that I've had a new awakening or I'm turning over a new leaf, which really doesn't have anything to do with what Jesus had in mind when he was talking to Nicodemus. He was saying, you need to be as though you were being born completely into a new creation again through Jesus Christ. Paul picks up on that thought, and so he talks about that as well. Another person, a pastor that I've read about, used the term a fresh wind and a fresh fire to let us know what happens when the Holy Spirit starts to become the agent of change in our lives because it's like he brings a fresh wind and a fresh fire into our lives and starts showing us that these changes that he makes in us are better and it's making us more able to reflect him to others. We all have many opportunities for change after we've taken that first step of faith. I've taken my first step 61 years ago because I was a little boy when I walked an aisle Pastor Keck was the pastor of a little house church. I remember that I was wearing a short sleeve white shirt. There was a fly buzzing around my head that I kept going like this because it was bothering me. It was in Arizona. It was hot. And I just felt that tug at my spirit by the Holy Spirit. And I knew I had to walk forward and give my heart to Christ. That's the way they said it back then. Give your heart to Christ. Now, I didn't know a lot of theology, but I knew I needed a Savior. And I knew Jesus was that Savior. And so that's the first day that I got saved, I was converted, I was born again. All those things that started the process. But let me tell you, I have needed a lot of change <laughs> over the years in my life. And I'm so glad that God is patient because he keeps working in me, bringing about more and more change. And I told my wife, Joy, if I ever stop changing, just put me out to pasture. Because even if I'm 90, if God allows me to live that long, I want to still be changing and learning new things from God's Word so that I'm getting closer and closer to Christ. That's the kind of hunger that God gives us when we start walking with Him because He'll never let us go. He'll keep changing us to be more like Him. With the Holy Spirit guiding this process of transformation that God promises, it becomes good grief. Not like, oh, good grief but good grief, really positive, productive grief. 
Paul the Apostle even describes some of this grief, this positive change, as being from death to life, for example. And anytime there's a death, there's going to be grief. And we're going to grieve some of the old life that we once lived. But when we understand that we're going from death to life, it helps us make that process. And from darkness to light, he even uses that term quite a bit too. Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 5. So these ongoing changes that we're going to be looking at in this next six weeks that the Holy Spirit brings affects every area of our lives. Your relationship with God, obviously, but also these horizontal relationships, the relationships with our immediate family, whether it be your parents or your child or your spouse or your fiance, if you happen to have one, your health, your finances, how you spend your money, how you save your money, where you're placing your money to do the most good for the greatest length of time, your education, your career, it changes all of this stuff. It affects every area of our life, which is why I think looking at change, and especially God's kind of change, is pretty vital if we want to be improved the way God wants to improve us, and it doesn't look at all like the way the world tells us that we need to be improved. Look at this verse found in Romans chapter 12. This is verse 2. Paul says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. Here's that new creation again. By changing the way you think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So that means that we have the first big choice that we can make, all of us, if we start this journey. And that is the choice to let God change the way I think. That's the first biggie. If we copy the behavior and customs of this world, you know what we usually do when we try to reset? We leave our current situation and we go in search of a different situation. That's why we see so many broken up relationships and so many people moving away from relationships and moving away from jobs and moving away from different states because they're always running away from something. That's what the world would say. But you know what happens when we keep doing that? We keep taking our unchanged selves into the new situation. Uh, there was a guy that spoke at our college years ago. His name was Tom Wolf. He's an amazing guy. He's kind of like a modern day Apostle Paul. He's a great speaker and he said, you know, the average tenure for pastors in our denomination at that time was about two years. He said, you know what happens if you take your two-year experience and you keep moving around from church to church for 20 years? You don't have 20 years experience. You have two years of experience repeated 10 times. Now, sometimes we do have a job and we need to propel up and we're learning more and we've given, been given more responsibility and it requires us to change location. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what happens if we never learn to change ourselves because no matter where we go, there we are. And if we're not changing, then when we take ourselves into the new situation, well, there we are again with the same stuff that we were doing in the last two years of whatever it was we were doing. So one of the things that I've seen that God has really done in my own life and in the lives of many other people who are seeing this change, it shows us how to stay put long enough to slog our way through conflict and to redeem relationships. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a really good thing when you 
figured out that you've come through a difficult season and you stayed the course and the relationship that was a problem is no longer a problem and now you're stronger. That's a great thing. That's the kind of outcome we can all pray that we would have as God keeps making these changes in our lives. Well, when we see God starting to change our minds, we recognize that it's God's power at work within us. We're not doing it because it's a self-help book that helps us make that change. It's the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Let me give you three reasons real quickly why you need to change your mind by allowing God's Spirit to change the way you think. First of all, here's the first one. My thoughts steer my life. Your thoughts are the starting point for everything that gets fleshed out in your life. I mean, think about that for a minute. And by thinking about that for a minute, you're doing exactly what I'm talking about. You're starting the process of recognizing thoughts are the beginning of everything that happens. And this is the most important thought we can think. God, you need to change the way I think. What a cognitive, wonderful thing that is. I think, therefore I am. But I think God can change me is an even better thing to say. Be careful how you think, says Proverbs 4.23. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. So what happens if we're thinking unhealthy thoughts? What do you think the outcome is going to be? It's going to be unhealthy outcomes. So healthy thoughts lead to healthy habits. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, small habits that become healthy and are carried out over time yield tremendous rewards. And that's where God starts. He's starting incrementally with the small thoughts that lead to small habits carried out over long periods of time. If you have unhealthy habits or unhealthy relationships, you have to make a choice to change the way you think. Nothing is going to change unless you change the way you think. So that's one reason why we need to let God start that process. Secondly, another good reason why we need to let God start this process, my conflicts take place in my mind. Choices between good and better, better and best, good and evil, healthy or unhealthy actions, a harsh or a gentle response, an angry outburst or time to take a deep breath and think what I'm about to say next. All those things take place in the mind. Jealousy, fear, stress, loneliness, addiction, relational conflict, all these start with thoughts in the mind. James says that, James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? He recognizes that. It's not always those persons, and it's not that person's fault. The conflicts begin here. The battle rages within each of us. That's where all these things start. And God's word, gratefully, is brutally honest. Now, I say gratefully. I'm not usually happy when God reveals things to me that are brutally honest sometimes because it's like he's speaking the language of two by four. What? And yet, after he has spoken to me and I finally get it, and I understand why he's showing me something like that, I recognize, oh, even that's motivated by his love. And so he's doing the best for me. So his word is honest about the battles that we each fight in our minds. We all fight battles in our minds, and sometimes we do things we don't want to do. I know I, every week I find myself saying one or two things 
that are flippant or probably hurtful and I didn't mean them to be and most often they're with the people that I know the best and I love the most but it's easy to let those little jabs fly out of there and I do those things and I think oh why do I keep doing that I don't want to do that Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans 7 it's because of this inner battle it's the inner struggle and sometimes we want to do something and we go eh, I think I'll join procrastinators Procrastinators Anonymous and I'll wait until tomorrow we don't do the things we want to do but we do the things we don't want to do and Paul says that's our nature we're fighting that old nature who keeps wanting to grab hold and drag us back and he says but you're a new creation so you don't have to live that way any longer so that's the war within us and here's something really encouraging if you find yourself in that same boat and you find yourself having that struggle the battle that goes on in your mind guess what he who is from God is so much stronger than he who is in the world. Jesus Christ, who inhabits your mind, is so much stronger than Satan, the enemy of God. And he's overcoming all that. And here's another good thing. Satan can make suggestions, but he can't control a believer. He can make suggestions. He can try to hint things, but he won't control you. He can't. You're from God. 1 John 4, 4 says that. You're from God. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And I think it's good for us to remember that. Uh, we see this analogy in the New Testament about these flaming arrows. Some of you are really into some of those old battle scenes and some of the movies, you know, and they light the, the tips on the arrows and pew, loosen them. And when they hit the thatched roof, the hut goes, <laughs> bursts into flame. Usually helped out by the special effects unit and lots of gasoline, but... They do that, and it's dangerous because you can burn down a whole village with that. He says, that's what suggestions are like from Satan. They're like these little fiery darts or these flaming arrows. But Paul also tells us that we have a defensive weapon at our ready. It's available to all of us, and that's the shield of faith. That if we're holding that up, then those arrows are going to bounce right off. They're going to be impervious to it. They're not flammable. They won't burst into flame. So he says, Ephesians 6, hold up the shield of faith to stop those fiery arrows, those suggestions from Satan. He might shoot those thoughts your way, but you don't have to hold on to them. You don't have to nurse them. You don't have to bring them into fruition by dwelling on them. You can just tuck them away because of the shield of faith. And because my thoughts steer my life, and because conflicts begin in my mind, I need to choose to let God change the way I think. And by looking into his word, that shield of faith gets built up. The more I'm in the word, the more I'm learning about Christ, the more that shield gets stronger and stronger. Here's the third reason why we need to choose to let God change us, change the way we think. My mind is where God's spirit works in me. We don't hear this too terribly often. Why is that? Because a lot of the translations will use the term heart. Change my heart, oh God, we just sang that. It's a good thing, and, and we understand it, many of us, but the heart in the New Testament was really kind of an analogy for the ways that we're processing that which is the most important. So if we substitute mind for heart in many of the things that we read about or that we sing, we're on the right track. God's Holy Spirit works in our minds, and that's why there's even one passage that talks about putting on the mind of Christ. And that's where all these decisions are made that affect everything in our lives. My mind is where God's Spirit works in me. 
Let the Spirit change your way of thinking, says Ephesians 4, 23 and 24a, and make you into a new person. Let the Spirit, who's the one doing the power, who's the one doing the work, it's the Spirit, change your way of thinking, that happens in the mind, and that's what He's doing to make us into a new creation. It's pretty blatant, it's pretty simple, it's pretty obvious, and yet we tend to ignore that. Our minds are where God starts to work the most. Now there's a big difference between a temptation and an inspiration. A temptation is what the enemy tries to do when he's trying to take us away from God or get us to face in the opposite direction or away from his will. That's a temptation. But an inspiration is what God gives us and he gives it to us most blatantly in his word. So we've got to learn the differentiation between whether something is a temptation or an inspiration and that's where a lot of this battle happens. The older we get, the more we've been in the Word, the more we've had chances to make some of these decisions, the easier it becomes to recognize them quickly and say, nah, that's a temptation, I'm going to discount it right away. Or this is an inspiration, this is from God, count me in. Romans 8, 6 says, if people's thinking is controlled by the sinful self, again, we hear Paul speaking about that, the old nature. If our thinking is controlled by the sinful self, there's death. But if their thinking is controlled by the Spirit, there's life and peace. It's so blatant and it's so obvious and we miss it so often. Let me review the three reasons we've looked at just now for choosing to allow God's Spirit to change the way I think. First of all, my thoughts steer my life. Secondly, my conflicts take place in my mind. My mind is where God's Spirit works in me. Those are good reasons for us to say, I'm going to take that step. If I haven't already, I'm going to choose to let God start changing the way I think. Now, we need some practical application. Who wants practical application? Raise your hands. Okay, thank you. It's anonymous. <laughs> That's a joke. I didn't say unanimous. I, okay, anyway. What are you feeding your mind? We want to put the best thoughts into our minds. That's one of the things we can do practically. Put the best thoughts into your mind. What are you feeding? I mean, if, if we are what we eat, then if we ate chocolate cake all the time, might be satisfied for a while, but I know for a fact that I would be grumpy, I would not be healthy, and it would probably do a lot of bad things for me. I would probably develop some sorts of ailments that I can't even describe. So we need to be feeding our minds also things that are going to be healthy for us. So we got to ask ourselves, what are we putting into our minds? And how does what we consume affect our thought life? Here's an analogy I discovered. Back when I was in my motorcycle era, I no longer own it, but when I did, I wanted to get back into motorcycling because I rode dirt bikes when I was in high school. And then I grew up <laughs> and I became a man and my wife suggested that if my kids wanted a father that was not dead lying on the side of the road that maybe I should wait for a while and I did and then she finally relented and allowed me to buy a motorcycle and I got one that was smaller so I could get used to it again and develop some skills and then I got a bigger one so that I could take joy with me and she discovered the joys of motorcycling and we enjoyed that but there's a thing that they talk that you when you're learning how to ride that you need to be aware of and it's called target fixation. They do that especially for racers because you'll start looking at the thing that you don't want to hit 
and you get fixated on that and you panic. And it's very strange. New drivers will do this too. You know, you can see them when they're learning. They'll look at the one thing they don't want to do and they're going straight toward that. It's like, why are you driving toward the thing you're trying to avoid? I don't know, but I'm fixated on it. And in reading about that, I found out that that came from bombers in the uh, World War II because they would be dive bombing a certain target and they'd get fixated on that and then they would panic and they would forget what they were doing and they would just fly right into the target instead of looking where they want to go. So now that they've chosen their target, then they look to where they want to go and then they go where they're looking. Same thing is true, I understand, is skiing. Now, I've only done some water skiing and not very well. One ski fell off and I was slalom skiing without meaning to. <laughs> but they say that where your head goes is where your feet will follow. Is that true, some of you who have skied? Okay. So they say that you can get fixated on what you don't want to do. And if you say, oh no, there's a tree. Well, you don't want to look at the tree because your feet are going to follow and you're going to run into the tree. So it means we need to fix our eyes on where we want to go rather than on where we don't want to go. Does that sound familiar with some stuff that Paul the Apostle has been telling us about? The principle is this, don't keep looking where you don't want to go. Which means don't put the stuff in your minds that are going to fixate you on the things that you don't want to be or act like. It's going to steer you away from life and health. You want to look at the things that are going to steer you toward life and health, which means we've got to put that stuff in our minds and it says in Philippians 4.8, fix your thoughts. Now, usually if we say, oh, that guy's fixating on that, we think of that as a bad thing. But in this case, it's a good thing for Paul to say, but you want to fix your gaze, fix your thoughts, feed your brain, fill your mind with what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. That's what we want to be filling our mind with because if we're around the other stuff or if we're pouring the other stuff in there, it's going to be helping us move our head looking at that which we don't want to run into. So here's a good idea. And I tried it a couple of weeks ago and it's helpful and I'm going to try it again this week. Find a day when you can unplug from media. Get away from media. Try a media fast. I found that this makes a bigger difference in my spiritual walk even than a physical fast and not eating food. Because with me, I have sort of a little bit of a low blood sugar drop if I don't eat certain foods. And so I still need to have a, enough going into my body to make sure that I don't bottom out, so to speak. So if you can try a media fast, if you can do a different kind of fast, do that as you're praying through some stuff. In fact, I would even suggest that as we collectively are starting to discern, God, how can we as a local body of believers, reflect your glory to other people, even people who are not like us, people who act and think differently than we do, people who aren't yet where we are, relationally or spiritually. How can we reach out to those folks? I think it would be great if we can all try a fast and ask God to help us have a running conversation with him all through that day that we've chosen and let him start speaking to us about what we can do that way. I'd like to offer that as a challenge, in fact. He started giving Joy and me a little extra time because we were driving and sometimes to get away from all the daily interruptions and demands gives you a chance to talk out things a little bit more and we were more objective. We had time to talk it out, pray it out, think it out. Those are good times for us to get away from all the busy distractions. So try that this next week. Carve out some time, do some form of a fast, make sure it's a healthy one, 
and see if God doesn't start revealing to you things that will help us make great suggestions about how we can reach out to others and display God's glory. So the first thing, put the best thoughts into my mind. That's one thing we can do. Second thing is, empty my mind of junk thoughts. Did you know that we can all develop a junk folder in our brains? We need one. I have a good junk folder in my brain. And it's filled with all kinds of junk. Gratefully, the longer I'm away from that junk and the more that I'm focusing on the things from God's Word and the things that I want to put in my brain, God just has this automatic trash removal system. And He comes along and He'll get rid of the junk in my junk folder and He does that for me. I don't even have to do it. I just slide it over there when I realize, oh, you know, that's junk and I don't want that in there. Kind of put it into that junk folder and go, around, go along trying to fixate on Him and the things that are going to be good for me and then he comes along and hits the delete button. It's a wonderful system. Those who live as their human nature tells them to, says Romans 8, 5, have their minds controlled by what human nature wants. Those who live as the Spirit tells them to have their minds controlled by what the Spirit wants. And as a believer in Christ, you have access to the Spirit's power and you don't have to keep doing what your old nature tells you to do, that old selfish, sinful nature. You don't have to. Here's the third thing. We can focus our minds on things that matter most. First, we can put the best thoughts in there. Secondly, we can empty our junk thoughts or create a junk folder. And then we can also focus on the things that matter most. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and protects our faith. That means we're thinking about Jesus. I mean, it should be a no-brainer that if the thing that matters most is the one who's doing the change and the one who wants us to be more like him, we need to be thinking about Jesus. <laughs> so how do we do that? We continue to get into his word. We study the word with fellow believers. We're around people who are on the same journey and we're looking at him because the more we fix on him, the more we're going to be able to run that race with endurance. And then also, secondly, think about Jesus, but also think about others. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Philippians 2.4. What a difference it would make if we would just do those two things alone, thinking more about Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis and thinking more about others. And then finally, we can think about eternity as well. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, Colossians 2 says, or Colossians 3, 2. My dad had a phrase that he would use when he was needing perspective, like if uh, the water heater blew out on the bottom because it rusted out and the bottom fell out, and then the water kept trying to fill itself up and there was nothing to stop it, and so we just had a flooded house when we came home from church one night. He, was, he had this phrase, he would say, well, this is a setback, but it's not going to matter 100 years from now. That's thinking about eternity. That's perspective. I love that. I heard that probably a dozen times in the years that I had when I was around my dad when he would need some perspective like that. We need to be thinking more about eternity, more about heaven, and less about the things that just bother us in the moment today, right now. Ecclesiastes says, God has planted eternity in the human mind or heart. He's put that there. We think about it because God's put it there. We all have a sense of eternity. Even atheists, if they're pushed to admit it, have to think about what happens after this body wears out. I think God has put that there for a reason. 
And sometimes they just need a little prodding to draw it out so that they can recognize, I do think about that. It may be in the back of my mind, but it is there. And when I go to a funeral, I wonder, is this it? Or is there more? I think God has placed that there for a reason. And we need to tap into that and think about eternity more. So we all have a sense of the eternal. And we can ask ourselves, what can we do that will accomplish the greatest good for the longest period of time? Well, the greatest thing we can start with is to start with a choice and ask God to change the way we think. That's the starting point. Once we've started there, then everything that changes in us allows us to affect other people because they see God's glory reflected in us and in our character. So they're drawn to him as well. And that results in people who also take those steps of faith and more people are added and they too can enjoy eternity with God forever. And there's nothing to fear with that because perfect love casts out all fear. It's not just about punishment. Most people confuse those two things. They think God is cruel and unjust because he says he's going to punish sinners if they don't repent. And what he's saying is, you're the one who has the choice. You're the one choosing not to accept all that I have to offer you. It's, you, it's in your court. This is on you. So you can choose to allow God to change the way we think and we start to see him so loving and so much more clearly. And that's the choice that we need to make. So let me summarize what we've learned today. Change always starts with choice. The first and most important choice we can make is to choose to let God change the way we think. Here are three reasons to let God change us. My thoughts steer my life. My conflicts take place in my mind. My mind is where God's spirit works in me. And then here are three practical things we can do every day of our lives to start allowing the Holy Spirit to change the way we think, to transform us. First of all, put the best thoughts into our minds. Empty my mind of junk thoughts, which means that if we've got media that's pouring in and we recognize, oh, wait a minute, that's junk, we can put it into the junk folder and turn that media off. And then thirdly, focus my mind on things that matter most, which includes Jesus, others, and eternity. Let me finish with this personal conviction. The more I study God's Word and the more I continue to realize that God is so patient in changing me, the more I am absolutely 100% convinced that Jesus is the only way to real life and life eternal. I'm convinced of that. You can't drag me away from this conviction. And in what few years I might have left, I am convicted that I need to share the good news that God wants to change you too for the better. And he's not doing it because he's mean. He's doing it because he's loving and gracious and compassionate. He's a friend of sinners if they will just allow him to be their friend by turning to him and submitting to his leadership. I was hurt really badly because I noticed that we had a huge fallout in the church at large, not just this church, but the church worldwide through the pandemic. And there was a lot of church hurt. There were a lot of people who behaved in ways that could create some of that hurt. But let me tell you, just honestly, if I behave badly, even though I say I'm a follower of Jesus, that's not on Jesus. It's not Jesus' fault that I messed up in following him. Jesus is still the only way, and he's perfect. And so I would just love to be able to tell people, wrap them up in a big old hug, and just shake them around a little bit in a loving way and say, don't leave Jesus 
because other people didn't follow him rightly. There's not a one of us that can follow Jesus rightly. The church is made up of people who are imperfect. Hi, I'm Clark, and I'm imperfect. And he who began that work in me will be faithful to continue that work until I see Jesus face to face. I'm one of the imperfect people. I probably wouldn't join a church that would have a guy like me as a member, except that I just know that he loves imperfect people. That's the kind of people Jesus hung out with. So if I could just get that message across <laughs> to people who have slid away from attending worship services or attending Bible studies with fellow believers, I would say, oh, give Jesus a chance. Don't give up on Jesus because he's not giving up on you. I really desire that. And I pray that we'll become the kind of people that people can see Jesus reflected in and say, okay, yeah, they're imperfect, but I can see that Christ is working in them because I can see evidence of change. And I need that change too. I want what that person has. And the little habits have big results. They really do. So let's pray and ask God to help us become change agents that way. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who is at work and is so powerful through your word, would grip somebody's heart, even right now, if they're hearing this message, and they'll recognize that the real change that needs to happen happens right inside their mind. And I pray that they will open themselves up and say, God, I want you to change who I am and the way I think, starting with how I think about you, and then bleeding over and transferring, crossing over into how they relate to other people. Thank you that you're so good to change us because you always want health and life. And all the changes you make in us result in health and life. Even though we go through trials and difficulties, you even use those things to change us. And I'm so grateful. Thank you for being the loving God that you are. I pray that many more people will grasp how wonderful you are and they'll be drawn to you and they'll make the decision to start allowing you to change their minds and hearts as well. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.